Would you pray with me, please? Father, we do thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can be here with each other in your presence. And we do lift this morning up to you. We lift each other up to you. We lift this next hour up to you. And we ask that through your word, you will speak to us. You will speak into our lives. You will teach us. You will help us to see you in our lives, in our world, in everything that goes on. We thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, literally, a very warm good morning to you. <laughs> so, it's actually warmer up here, in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> I was told I should introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. Uh, my name is Todd Soar, and I have been coming to Newcom for about, I guess, five years now. So I live up in Deerfield. I go to school at Trinity International University, teach for the distance education department, trying to finally finish up the degree and be able to move on from there. And this morning, it's my privilege to be able to talk to you. And I'd like to talk to you from a section of your Bible that you might not delve into very often. So if you'll take your Bibles or take your iPads, your phones, whatever, turn to Habakkuk. That's where we'll be looking. I don't normally start with a joke. But I heard a story at one time, I think it was uh, Chuck Swindoll that told it, and it fits with what we're going to talk about this morning. And the joke is about, it's about a guy, a thief, who's decided he's going to rob this place. He's in the neighborhood, he, he scopes out the community, targets this one specific place, and he said, okay, I know they're going to be gone, and he waits until they're gone waits for cover of darkness, goes in at night. And he walks through the door. He's walking through, getting ready to do his his deed. And he hears this voice from the corner. And the voice says, I see you, and Jesus sees you. Of course, he panics because he's thinking, nobody's supposed to be home. Pulls out his flashlight, shines over to the corner. Here's a parrot in the cage and when he shines on the parrot the parrot says I see you and Jesus sees you and he's like oh I'm fine and then he hears this really deep low growl and he shines the flashlight down from the parrot cage and hears this humongous Doberman pincer and the parrot says sick him Jesus (laughs) It fits. It fits because my point is, leading into this, the way we respond to God reflects our view of him. If you view God as a parrot in a cage, then there's no teeth, there's no fear, none of that. But if you view him as the Doberman pincer that could do you harm, there's a whole different response. Proverbs actually begins, the first chapter, verse 7. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you have a knowledge of who God is, 
If you have a fear of who God is, a respect and a reverence and an understanding, then it completely changes the way you respond to him. With Habakkuk, you have a a prophet who is looking at his life. He's looking at his country. He's looking at things around him and he's saying, God, I don't understand. So on the one hand, the way we respond to God is a reflection of our view of God. On another hand, our reflection of God, our understanding of God, is reflected in the way we respond to him, particularly when we don't understand what he's doing. Now before you look at this and you say, okay, this is a 7th century prophet, which you may or may not have known. 7th century prophet, what does he have to say to me in this century, this time, this context? Before you turn him off, let me just read the first few verses and see if this resonates at all. He starts right out, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look on wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. Ever feel this way? He's looking around him. He's looking at his life. He's looking at his city. He's looking at the circumstances and he's saying, What is going on? This is a mess. And if you're wondering what exactly is going on in his life, they had had some promise. It had looked good for a time. You have four. If you know the prophets, four of the prophets ministered about the same time. You have Nahum, you have Zephaniah, you have Habakkuk, and you have Jeremiah. Nahum, Zephaniah, they prophesy a bit earlier, and they're specifically addressing global issues uh, when Assyria is in power and just how devastating things are. Interestingly, Nahum is a follow-up to the book of Jonah. Most of you probably know Jonah, don't know Nahum. Jonah goes, went into the city of Nineveh reluctantly and by force essentially, preaches to them and they respond. There's a conversion, they come to faith, the whole city turns to God. And the judgment that Jonah warned about is stayed. A few generations later, not that long, you have Nahum prophesying and saying they've gone back to it. And the city of Nineveh has no more hope. Nineveh is wiped out. You have Zephaniah. He's writing, and he's writing and saying, I'm familiar with the innermost dealings of the government. He has connections on the highest level. You can see it throughout the book as you read it. And he talks about corruption throughout. So he's not just looking at his neighborhood. He's saying, the leaders are corrupt. And he says, it's not just the leaders in in the political realm. It's not just the kings. It's also the priest. He's saying, the place is a mess. And so he prophesies specifically to 
the corruption within the government. Later on, then you have Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's writing about this. And what had happened was Josiah at one point had become king. Young king. So in some ways you think, well, you know, you could be nervous about him. But he had good advisors. And he had a heart for God. And so while Josiah ruled, things were going really well. He was making good decisions. He even said, we need to make sure that worship is a priority again. He's leading them in that direction. But in the process, you have the political movements that are going on. And Assyria is on the decline. Egypt decides they don't want Babylon to be a world power. So they decide to try and invade. And so as they do, Josiah decides he's going to counteract that. And when he does, he's killed. So you have a good young king taking things in the right direction. And in his death, he's replaced by someone who is going in the other direction. And so during the time of Jehoiakim, Established by the Egyptian ruler, by the pharaoh. Jehoiakim takes things in the opposite direction. Politically, things are not good. He makes political decisions that are not for the benefit of the country. He swindles money just for his own personal gain. He makes horrible decisions. And he also, in terms of worship, he leads them in directions that they're worshiping all over the place. So you have corruption... You have a leader that's taking things in the wrong direction nationally. You have spiritual leaders that are not leading spiritually. And Habakkuk's not the only one that feels this way. If you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he's so upset about the way things are going. So Habakkuk looks at this and he says, what is going on, God? I don't understand. You see this. You know this. I know who you are. Why aren't you doing anything? In the next few verses, God answers him. And in his answer, he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Okay, so tell me. Next verse. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And then he goes through the next few verses just explaining how incredibly powerful and how incredibly fearsome the Babylonian army is and how no one has been able to oppose them at this point. So... Assyria had been scary enough as they were in the beginning. They're displaced. Babylon develops this cruel, cruel reputation. They were known for when they would take over a country. They would take over the country and they were known for doing these death marches. And what they would say is, we're deporting you, we're transporting you to a different place. And instead, they were just death marches. And then they would take the best from those countries... And they would, they would deport them, but they would take them back to Babylon and try to enculturate them for their own benefit. So they're feared throughout the world. And so he has this whole description. Verse 7, he says, they're dreaded and they're fearsome. Their justice and 
dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. You know, he's just going to hyperbole. He's saying, their horses are faster than anything you've ever seen. You have nothing that's going to match up with them. And you're in deep, deep trouble. To where he reaches the end of it in verse 11. And he says, they sweep by like the wind and they go on guilty men whose own might is their God. So let me ask, if you're the prophet, how do you feel about God's answer? You've poured yourself out to him and you've said, God, look at my life. Look at our situation. Look at what we're going through. Look at what's being done. You're a just God. How can you possibly tolerate this? God says, wait a minute. I'm sending someone to judge. I see it. I understand what you're going through. And it matters to me. If nothing else, I think that's incredibly important for us to realize. Second Chronicles talks about um, the men of Issachar and describes the men of Issachar as men who understood their times and they knew what Israel should do. What's fascinating is as you read through the prophets, to see the prophets interpreting their time. And talking about what Israel should do. Sometimes go well. But to be honest, most of the times when the prophets are writing, they're writing because they need to write. They're writing because things are not going well. Because when they see the news, when they sit in the gate and hear the latest that's going on, it's negative. It's pessimism. It's horrible. So the prophets write toward this. If you're the prophet and you say, God, this isn't right, and God says, um, I see it, I'm dealing with it, I'm sending the Chaldeans, and you know the reputation of the Chaldeans, what is your response? So you go from Habakkuk's question to begin with. Why do you allow injustice to go unchecked? To God's answer, I don't allow it to go unchecked. I'm responding to it, I will deal with this, and I will demonstrate my power and my righteousness. Now you have, now you have Habakkuk's quandary. You're welcome, Ryan. I seem to keep flipping this up. Now you have Habakkuk's quandary. Because in the next few verses, he says, verse 12, he says, Okay, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my only one? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. Okay, I understand that. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. I was praying about reproof. Next verse. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallow up? Then he goes into another illustration and he says, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the Babylonians are fishermen. And this fisherman goes out and he throws his nets and he's just collecting all the nations and doing brutal things to them. So yes, I understand. I complain to you. I understand that I said this isn't just. You should do something about this. I have some issues with what you're doing about it. 
So then he's coming to him and he's saying at the end of it, is he then to keep on employing his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So he says, I have another problem. If I can raise this, please, what are you doing now? I still don't get it. And see, this, what's fascinating as you look at it too, he says here, O Lord my God, my Holy One, the one who has ordained them for judgment, you're the rock, you're the one who has purer eyes than to see evil. Notice what we said at the beginning. The way we respond to God reflects our view and our understanding of God when we don't understand what he's doing. You have a prophet who's looking at this and he's saying, things are horrible, you are righteous, you are just, you are pure. Why is it going this way? But he knows who he is. He knows who God is. And he keeps appealing to who God is to ask for a response. So in the next chapter, he begins it and he says, okay, I don't understand, so what am I going to do? I think I will take my stand at my watchtower I'll station myself at the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So I raised the question. He gave the answer. I have the quandary. And so since I have the quandary and I'm uncomfortable with his answer, I think I'll sit here longer and see if he says something else. Because I need more insight into this. I need him to speak more to me. I need more context. Because I don't understand, I don't understand why he would deal with it this way. So within chapter 2, God answers him again. He says, write this vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits his appointed time. It hastens to the end. It shall not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, God is going to give his perspective on Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon at this point. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. I know that. You know that. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about Faith in Abraham's life. Going when he didn't know where he was going. Trusting God that God would give him children when he seemed way too old to be having kids. Last week, talked about the faith of Hannah. Longing for a son. And going years where she's barren. But asking God, trusting God, hoping that God would reach out to her. And here you have Habakkuk. Going through this, he says, I have a question, I have an answer, I have a quandary. It's still a problem. And God says, wait. You're seeing things this far ahead. There is so much more time. There is so much more context than you're aware of. And I am active in your time, even if it doesn't look like it. So wait. Wait, watch, trust me. 
If you notice, one of the themes in the New Testament, Paul says, the just will, li- will live by faith. Where is he drawing from? You have Paul reading Habakkuk, learning from Habakkuk, and saying that is the theme of the believer's life. Where we trust God when times are good, we praise him when times are good, and when things are not, we look to him and we say, I don't get it, but I do trust you. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust the one who's doing it. And so, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you. He spends the rest of the chapter laying out five different woes. We're not going to go through woe by woe. We'll just say there are five woes. And the five woes are response where Habakkuk is taking this response from God. And he's saying, okay. Now I see, because what God is saying is, if you wait long enough, what you'll find is that, yes, I have sent and allowed the Chaldeans to come, and they have come to deal with the injustice and the sin that you complained about at the beginning. And at the same time, in time, they will be judged for their part. So how does that play out? God is essentially saying everyone is responsible for his or her own sin. Yes, our sins affect each other. Yes, our sins have implications for each other. If you look at it, our pain and suffering, are they the consequence of sin? Yes. Our pain and suffering in a person's life indicative of hidden sin, secret sin, within this person's own life. Not necessarily. You have the book of Job. Starts out, Job's a righteous man. And God says, look at him. He follows me. And, God, and the devil says to him, well, of course he follows you. Look at all the money you've given to him. Look at all the family you've given to him. You've taken really, really good care of Job. There's no, it's no question. No wonder he would follow you. And God says, okay, let's prove this. You may test him. You may touch him. You may do a number of things to him. Devastating things to his family. His kids just wiped out. Devastating things to his business enemy comes in and steals his flocks. Devastating things to him personally, physically. He goes through tremendous pain where the devil is allowed to subject him to boils and to just horrendous, horrendous pain. And yet, you reach the end of the book and in the end, God vindicates him and says, in all of this, In all of this, Job did not sin. Job says, he can take my life. But I still, I still trust in him. And we, in the book of Job, get a backdoor glimpse of what's going on. We get to see that Job is right. Because the truth is, Job's got friends. And the friends have this interpretation that yes, sin 
uh, evil and suffering are the consequence of sin. So they come in and say, Job, look at how much you're suffering. You must be really, really sinful. I don't know what you've done, but it was bad. And I know it was bad because look at you. You're a mess. Good friends, right? (laughs) And at the end of it, God is saying, yes, evil and suffering, they're the consequence of sin. No, evil and suffering within a life are not necessarily indicative of personal unconfessed sin in this person's life. Because the truth is, my sin affects you, your sin affects me. And so we may be dealing with repercussions, pain and suffering in our own life that's because someone else has sinned. In Habakkuk, you have judgment that's addressing the sin within Israel, within Jerusalem. And that's right. It's a consequence of their sin. At the same time, God is saying, I'm not forced, it's not where God is forcing Nebuchadnezzar, waking him up in Babylon and saying, you know what? I know you don't want to do this. It's going to be, it's going to be a long trip. It's going to be a lot of bloodshed. It's going to be just a mess. But you have to go. I'm sending you and you just have no choice. So go. It's, that's not the scenario. What you have is you have what is described in the first chapter where he says, this is a bloodthirsty people. He's a greedy people. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his own sinfulness, longs to take over all of these other countries. He wants to be a world power. He wants to establish Babylon like never before. And in the process of doing that, God uses Nebuchadnezzar to judge the sin within within his own people. But it doesn't absolve Nebuchadnezzar of his own sin in the process. See, sin makes a mess of life wherever it shows up. So in responding to sin, there needs to be, there inevitably is complexity in the way God responds to it. Imagine, if you will with me, imagine what life would be like if you could sin with impunity and nothing ever happened. What kind of life would you live What kind of world do you think we would live in? What would people do? It's fascinating if you go to the the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis. Adam and Eve sin. And they've been warned, if you sin, in the day you eat from what I, I told you, just avoid this for your good. In the day you sin, you will die. Imagine if you're the two of them and you wake up the next day and you say, wait a minute, I got away with it. I'm alive, I woke up. But then if you watch it, you see Genesis chapter five and you have this whole list. This person lived so many years and then he died. Lived so many years and then he died and then he died and then he died and then he died. Theme of chapter five. And in chapter five then, you have evidence where you're starting to say, oh, wait a minute. When he sinned, the core of who he was changed. That something internal died and that began to play out in actually seeing physical death 
And so you see it throughout, and then you see the repercussions. You see it within their own family, as Cain and Abel, the first murder within their own family. Did Abel die because he sinned? Abel died in that, in that situation. He died specifically because Cain couldn't get over, didn't get over his jealousy and killed him. So then Abel suffers that consequence. Cain suffers his own consequence. That's what Habakkuk is dealing with later on. Habakkuk is saying, on a national scale, this is the way it's playing out. So in the end, you get to chapter 3, and Habakkuk is going to end this with a prayer. He ends chapter 2 saying, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then he starts this prayer. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, in wrath, remember mercy. So he's saying, I started out the book asking, asking you to judge, asking you to demonstrate your power, asking you to demonstrate your wrath against evil. Then you answered, and then I had issues with how you answered. But in all of this, I'm asking both that you uphold the integrity of justice and that you demonstrate mercy. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Why does he allow it in the lives, as Habakkuk is saying, why does he allow it in the lives that seem more righteous than other lives that don't seem to be suffering as much? It's interesting if you go near the end of the scriptures. If you turn with second, to Second Peter, Peter picks up the same theme in chapter 3. And in chapter 3 of Second of Peter, he says, do not mistake the patience of God for the injustice of God. If you look at it, he says, the people, the scoffers, scoff and they say where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation but they deliberately overlook this fact which fact well they deliberately overlook the fact that God created the world to begin with he created the world to begin with the world was created through the word of God and the power of God God also can destroy the world And in fact, with the flood, he destroyed pretty much everything and left only a remnant. And the truth is, he will do the same later. So he says in this, the same word, this is verse 7, the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the day with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God has far more perspective than you do. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So then what is he doing? He says, but he's patient. He's patient towards you. And why is he patient toward you? He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should come with repentance. If God wanted to, he could very well, as soon as any of us sinned, judge us on the spot and obliterate us and it would be over with. But he doesn't. So on the one hand, the existence of evil and suffering is a consequence of sin. And in being a consequence of sin, it's also an evidence that God has given time. If God didn't judge sin, if God didn't deal with sin, then we might go on as if there was no consequence and if it, as if it wasn't all that serious. He doesn't do anything about it. There's no consequence. There's no pain. There's no suffering. I feel fine. But the fact that there is pain and there is suffering is a reminder to us. It's a reminder to me that things are not the way they were created to be. And they're not the way they were created to be, not just because of things out there, because of evil in the way beyond. Things are also not the way they were created to be because of things in here. Pain and suffering isn't something that other people experience because they've sinned. Pain and suffering is something that I experience on my own level because of my own sin, in my own relationships, in my own dealings with people, in my own conscience. I feel it. So in some ways, Peter is saying, in echoing Habakkuk, he's saying, the presence of pain and suffering is God allowing the consequences of sin and allowing our lives to experience the consequence of sin to indicate to us that this is not the way it was supposed to be, this is not the way it will be, and giving us time to respond. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Dorian Gray. The literature. Dorian Gray. A guy who just seems to have everything. Perfectly built. Incredibly good looking. All of this. And so he meets an artist. And the artist sees him and he says, you're incredible. <laughs> you just don't see people like you very often. I'd really, really like to paint you. And so Dorian, of course, you know, go ahead. How do you want me to pose, you know? So he, he gets sat and the artist paints him. Does a really good job. And Dorian Gray, he looks at this and he says, that's incredible. I do look really good. I wish, I wish whatever I did in my life would never show up in terms of consequences to my person and only showed up in the painting. And he's granted the wish. The painting is put away, it's put in the attic. Dorian, because he's not experienced any, any consequences, he's going through his life and he's just living it up. Sinning with impunity, taking advantage of people in every way possible and feeling no effects of it. 
And so this goes on and on and on. And at one point, he finally goes back and he, he checks in with this artist. And he goes up in the attic and he wants to see this painting himself. He's alone. He sees the painting. And the painting has absorbed all the consequences of Dorian's sin. And it's grotesque. Where he looks so incredible to begin with, he looks horrible now. No one would be attracted to him. And he looks at this and he's mortified because he's thinking, wait a minute. If someone else sees this, if the artist comes up here and looks at this again, he is going to figure out what happened. He's going to know the way I've been living my life. He's going to know what I've been doing to people. And he's going to see it in this painting. So what he does is he decides, I'm going to ruin the painting. So he takes a knife, plunges the knife into this painting, is going to ruin it. When he does, the servants in the home hear a scream. And they go running up there, and the painting has been restored. It went back to its original, pristine, beautiful painting. And all of the ugliness has been transferred to Dorian Gray, who's practically unrecognizable on the floor dead. The consequences of sin as they play out. Malcolm Muggeridge, British journalist of the last of the last century, spy during World War II, and then he was the one who was really known for introducing Mother Teresa to the West. He made an observation. He said, "If God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place." It'll either be the megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus. The Chaldeans are going for the clenched fist. They're living it up. You have stories like Dorian Gray that are saying, okay, just pursue all the pleasure you can in this lifetime. Habakkuk is looking at life and he's looking at the ugliness of it And he's reading his news and he's saying, okay, how should I understand this? Is it a situation of God is good when things are good and God is gone when things are bad? No, I'm reading the news and I'm trusting that God is here in both of those times. In the good and the bad. And in being there for both, I have perspective for my life. We sang to begin with, Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us glory in this. Let us glory in your presence, whether it seems good or bad. Because if you reach the end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk ends it on a note that you probably wouldn't be inclined to end most of your letters. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit the flock be cut off from among the fold and there be no herd in the stalls in other words nothing is going right though all of that is the case yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation why God the Lord is my strength he makes my feet like the deer's He makes me tread on high places. 
And then he submits it to the choir master to turn into music. I don't know what you would put to, what kind of tune you would put with that one. So it might be the blues or something. But this is how he ends it. He says, though all of this may be the case, though nothing may go right in my life, I trust him. And part of the reason I trust him is because when I didn't understand him, he revealed to me that I'm short-sighted. That there's a longer view to this. That God is patient. That he is giving us time. But that he will deal with sin. And he deals with sin in everybody's life. If you note in the end, you talked about hope is looking toward the future. In the end, you read the end of, of the scriptures, the book of Revelation. At the end, he says, there's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, as those are being established, there's judgment for those who never deal with their sin, who never deal with that alienation between them and God. Justice proves to be true in the end. God says, I give time, and in giving time, that validates and, and affirms even more the justice of judgment. And on the other hand, for those who have come to him, who've said, okay, I see, I see that. I see the sin in my own life. I recognize it in my own life. I turn to you. I ask for forgiveness. I come to Christ. He puts that sin on Christ. Notice he doesn't just say, okay, Good apology, I'll take it. You're good. No problem. Jesus, when he was in the garden, said, God, if there is any way, Father, for this to pass from me, I don't want to go through it. Crucifixions are incredibly, incredibly painful. And I'm not looking forward to it. I, if there's any other way, there was no other way. Why was there no other way? Because God is maintaining the integrity of justice while finding a way to extend mercy. And the way of extending mercy is to put the guilt and the payment for our sin on Christ. So in Christ's death and resurrection for us, you reach the end and you say, okay, those who were in Christ, or those who rejected Christ, did not deal with their sin, did not deal with their alienation from God, justified in the punishment of sin. We ask for justice. We want justice when, when people are violated, when people do wrong. We cry out for it. This is God affirming justice and the integrity of it. On the other hand, injustice, show mercy, please. Because if you don't, none of us stand. In showing mercy, he puts the punishment on Christ himself who bears that ultimate punishment for us. C.S. Lewis, this is the end. C.S. Lewis made a comment and an observation in his lifetime. And his observation was looking at the short-sightedness that is so often the case and that should not be the case. But he says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world 
that they have become so ineffective in this one. Habakkuk is saying, justice, we need justice. God is saying, you'll get justice. You will get justice. It's, it's woven within the fabric of, of the character of God, and he does what is right. But he gives time, and in giving time, he's saying, it's a longer view. There is more to this. And so, yes, within this lifetime, pursue justice. When you see injustice around you, speak out. Absolutely pursue justice. But Habakkuk's, his caution is don't place all of your hope in this lifetime and in this world. Because this lifetime and this world, they only last so long. And to be honest, the older I get, the shorter this lifetime looks. Which I have a theory about that. My theory is when you're young, like if you're three, a year, that's a third of your life, so it's eternity. At my age, not three. (laughs) Not three. A year looks a whole lot shorter. God is looking at Habakkuk and he's saying, I know what time it is. I know what's going on in your life. I know what you're dealing with. And I care about it. Absolutely care about it. Don't put all your hope in this lifetime. Don't put your hope in Assyrians. Don't put your hope in Babylonians. Don't put your hope in a young Josiah because he could die on you. This lifetime is not all there is. There is an eternity that follows. You need to think about that. And then, as Christ says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will he give in exchange for his soul? He who seeks to keep his life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. So, This morning, I'm just asking that together we take this hot time and think about how do we read the news? How do we become like men of Issachar who can understand our times, who can understand it when it's good and praise him, who can understand it when it's not so good and realize that there's nuance and complexity and wisdom to the way God deals with us so that we don't reject him when we don't understand him. Because we know he's good. We know he's right. And we know he loves us. So let's become more aware of his presence. Let's pray. Let's listen through Habakkuk. And let's close. If the ushers will come forward, I'll pray for the offering and wrap up. Father, I do thank you for this. I thank you for everyone who is here with me this morning, who has braved the heat and the uncomfortableness to sit here and to ask you to speak into our lives. Speak, O Lord. Give us perspective for our own personal lives, for our relationships, for our world. Help us to trust you. Help us to know you 
more and more and to love you for who you are. And in those times when we don't understand, help us to wait. Give us patience. Give us hope. In your name we pray. Amen.